the, I think that Roberts wants to overcome a legacy in the late Rehnquist court of constant 5-4 opinions. There's good statistical evidence to suggest that a precedent that's decided at 5-4 will last less long, will have less durability than a precedent that's decided 6-3 or 7-2. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny and hopefully fire-free Southern California. <laughs> yeah, hope so, Craig. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where it is also sunny for a change. That is quite a change. Well, I, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, I know you write some blogs. I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. And a new sponsor, AppRiver, an email and web security experts. You can find out more about AppRiver at AppRiver.com. And returning again, an old sponsor, PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, you can go to PCLaw.com slash radio. Well, last week uh, brought the close of one of the most highly anticipated Supreme Court terms uh, in years, it seems. Uh, although they're all highly anticipated, aren't they? Uh, the justices handed down many important and historic decisions over the course of this past term, of course, most notably uh, involving uh, health care in the last week of the term. Uh, but uh, many of the decisions uh, of all sorts will affect uh, Americans for years to come. So it's time once again for our annual United States Supreme Court wrap-up on Lawyer to Lawyer. And joining Bob and me now for an in-depth discussion on this past SCOTA session is Professor Jan Ting from Temple University's Beasley School of Law. Jan teaches citizenship, immigration, refugee, taxation, and national security law courses. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jan. Hey, great to be with you. And also joining us today is New York University law professor Roderick Hills, Jr. Roderick is... Uh, teaches courses including constitutional, administrative, local government, race, class, and land law. We'd like to welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Roderick Hills. Great to be here. Well, let's, uh, let's start out with the most obvious uh, Supreme Court ruling that's caught the attention, which is the Obamacare um, Affordable Care Act. Uh, Jan, tell us uh, what you know about the ruling. Well, um, I was uh, very happy with this ruling. Um, I thought that the Chief Justice surprised everyone, but uh, had basically a sound analysis um, that uh, the uh, mandate uh, of health care ought to survive as an exercise of the federal government's power to tax. I wasn't so happy with the um, abandonment of the requirement that states as part of their Medicaid participation, uh, participate in the expansion of Medicaid up to 133% of the um, poverty level. Uh, the the uh, majority decided that uh, forcing the states to do that uh, under pressure of uh, being completely excluded from Medicaid funding uh, was too much of an imposition of federal authority uh, onto the states. 
And so the states have the ability, um, in theory, to opt out. Now, I think the burdens are going to be very heavy uh, on the states if they opt out. I think their providers are going to end up providing 100% of care for a particular segment of the population. I think the providers are going to put a lot of pressure uh, on the states to uh, participate voluntarily in this uh, Medicaid expansion. But I'm afraid that some states may have governors who are ideologically committed to opposing everything in the um, Affordable Care Act, and that may lead them to, you know, cut off their nose to spite their face uh, and uh, exclude their own uh, constituents from uh, an expansion of Medicaid, uh, which would be very helpful financially, not only to those individuals, but to the taxpayers uh, in their states. There's starting to be some last-minute uh, or, or, I guess, uh, ex post facto speculation here that Justice Roberts uh, changed his his vote, was initially leaning the other way. Uh, it, it's been an interesting term. The, the, uh, the SCOTUS blog uh, put out their stat pack. Uh, it, it showed that uh, in, in a fair number of the cases, uh, it was a, a 9-0 decision uh, in the court. and uh, the, 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 the 5-4 split we've come to expect so much was... Uh, really in a, well, in, a, in about a quarter, about a fifth of the cases, I guess, uh, is right. But, Roderick, what do you, how do you see uh, Justice Roberts' role uh, this this term, and, and, and what kind of uh, legacy is he carving out for himself here? Well, you know, this term had a lot of cases um, that were of no conceivable interest to anyone except for a lawyer. So it's not terribly interesting that he pulled in a 9-0 vote on some of those. Um on some of the cases that dealt with constitutional federalism, however, there still were big divisions. I mean, there was the um, Family Medical Leave Act, um, the Coleman case, um, and that that provoked some sharp dissents. And, um, you know, I think that um, the I think that Roberts wants to overcome a legacy in the late Rehnquist court of constant 5-4 opinions. There's good statistical evidence to suggest that a precedent that's decided at 5-4 will last less long, will have less durability than a precedent that's decided 6-3 or 7-2. Um, my former law school classmate and um, now law professor, Stu Benjamin, has a, a, a statistical analysis co-written with a political scientist running the numbers. Um, and that's not terribly surprising. 5-4 opinions just don't last um, because they don't, um, in the minds of the court, um, carry the same kind of weight or respect. Um, so I think that Roberts is trying to keep the court from being buffeted from one 5-4 majority to another. And, um, you know, unfortunately, with the uh, Affordable Care Act, um, he wasn't able to pull together a 6-3 or a 7-2. Um, and that suggests that on any issue that is hard-fought, the Arizona immigration case, um, some of these federalism cases, um, it will be very difficult to um, overcome the 5-4 split. Well, how does this ruling, uh, Jan, do you look at it changing the powers of Congress? Do you think that Congress has, uh, the Republicans are going to try and mount a, a repeal of Obamacare? Or how does this affect the interplay between Congress and uh, the Supreme Court? Well, I, I think the Republicans are looking for a silver lining uh, in the health care opinion, and they see the silver lining as um, very strong language uh, against expansive use of the Commerce Clause. Uh, but as Roderick just uh, pointed out, uh, you know, the, a 5-4 decision um, 
uh, is questionable uh, for the long-term future. And I think on this issue of, of Commerce Clause uh, uh, use, uh, although the uh, majority opinion said, well, you know, this Health Care Act would not survive under the Commerce Clause, um, I, I don't know, to me, I'm not a constitutional specialist like Roderick is, but it, to me, that just sounds like dictum. And I, I, I think that rule will last only as long as the present composition of the court lasts. And I would think that uh, going into the future on a, on a different issue, uh, when we get back to discussion of the Commerce Clause, um, I don't think the language that was in this opinion uh, is going to have a, a whole lot of uh, weight prospectively. I think Justice Roberts is, um, as a chief justice, very much concerned about the uh, image of the court, uh, as Roderick was saying. Uh, you know, this is, af- after all, going to be known as the Roberts Court for a long time to come. And uh, I think uh, chief justices historically uh, pay a lot of attention to uh, public perception of the court more uh, than uh, the associate justices individually may do. Yeah, I would add one point to that, which is that the Commerce Clause theory um, on which Congress's power was allegedly narrowed was um, a theory that was really a a ticket good for this ride only. It has no scope whatsoever. Um, And so even if the court sticks with that particular Commerce Clause limit forever, it will not affect Congress in the slightest degree. Because essentially the theory says that Congress can't conscript people into buying stuff. Well, Congress never wants to conscript people into buying stuff. In fact, Congress wouldn't have done it for the Affordable Care Act, except for the novelty that the American Enterprise Institute and some other basically um, pro-business people didn't like a single-payer system. So you will search in vain through the U.S. Code for another statute, and you will search in vain through each congressional session for another bill that conscripts anybody into buying anything. And furthermore, now if Congress wants to conscript somebody to buy, buy anything, they'll just use the taxing power. So I'm not so worried about this Commerce Clause holding. I don't think it was ever taken seriously as anything but a silver bullet to kill the Affordable Care Act, because it simply has no application outside that very narrow scope. Well, uh, just, uh, Roderick, I mean, setting aside this this Obamacare, or, or here in Massachusetts, I think we like to call it Romney Care, yeah. uh, but uh, the... You know what's what stands out from you for you from this this term and what 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 do you see as some of the the really significant rulings that came down from the court, if any, this term? Um, well, you know the obvious ones um, involved um, Arizona versus United States, um, the case on um, where, whether Arizona can supplement um, the United States um, enforcement efforts on the Immigration and Naturalization Act. Um, I think that Coleman versus Maryland. Um, which um, limited the ability of private citizens to enforce the Family Medical Leave Act. Um, that's an important one. Douglas versus Independent Living Center is another important one. That limited the ability of private citizens to enforce Medicaid conditions. And I note that that last case, Douglas, was unanimous. And in many ways, it's much more significant for health care than anything um, in the much more famous decision that came down last week because it says that private citizens cannot file a lawsuit against a state um, to force them to obey Medicaid conditions. Um, you, you know, your listeners should realize that although lots of conditions are attached to federal grants, quite often they're not enforced at all. And um, you might say, well, why doesn't the federal government enforce those conditions? Well, the only way that they can really enforce them is by pulling the money. And if you're a cabinet secretary who's actually trying to administer a program and make sure, say, people get health care, the last thing you want to do is cut off the grant. 
So I suspect what governors will do is what governors have always done, which is sort of, you know, cut corners in obeying the coverage provisions of um, the new Medicaid expansion. And Douglas, um, from the court's um, fall term, um, fall session, I should say, lets him do that. Um, if a private citizen is upset by that, they're not going to be able to sue the state. So um, I think, you know, there's been a, a significant series of um, decisions that expand the ability of states to act free from federal oversight. Um, I think those are pretty important. Um, and then there's been a series of decisions that have said um, that states have to toe the line in certain select areas, and immigration is one in which the court has said that's a prime area of national concern. And, of course, that's an area in which Jan is um, a quintessential expert. And, Jan, just to follow up on the Obamacare ruling, there's been a lot of noise that, you know, this is essentially a created opinion, that this is judicial activism, uh, politics that we, you know, we're just using smoke and mirrors, really, to call it a tax as opposed to a mandate. What's your impression of how the American public view this? And how does, is the American public right or are they looking at it incorrectly? Is there really a legal basis for what Roberts did? Well, I think the the American public is very divided uh, on uh, this particular issue, but I, I think there certainly is a legal basis. Uh, anytime you can get um, five justices of the Supreme Court to agree on anything, uh, there's at least a, a firm legal basis for, for what they're saying. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm heartened to hear uh, Roderick's uh, discussion of uh, how Medicaid actually works in practice, and, and I'm hopeful that that will encourage all the state governors who opposed uh, the Affordable Care Act to nonetheless uh, participate in the uh, Medicaid expansion, recognizing that they've got some wiggle room on, on how it's uh, administered. But I think it's important uh, that, uh, that they participate and that we get the maximum amount of coverage out of the uh, Affordable Care Act. Um, I, I think the, the immigration case that Rod was mentioning is uh, very significant. It's really um, something new, and the court hasn't had a whole lot to say about uh, preemption until uh, recently. Um, there was a decision last year uh, on uh, preemption issues, and, um, and now we know the answer. <laughs> the extent to which uh, the federal immigration law preempts uh, the states from acting, uh, and um, the court, uh, you know, put its imprimatur as to what uh, what uh, the states uh, cannot do. They cannot make it a crime for uh, illegal immigrants to seek employment. Um, that's preempted. Uh, they cannot make it a crime for uh, illegal immigrants to um, uh, not carry uh, identification papers and, and register with the federal government, as they're required to do under federal law. The states can't make it a crime, even if it is a crime uh, under federal law. So uh, now we know that. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy about the remaining provision, uh, which uh, the court allowed to stand, which is uh, the provision that says the uh, police officers can be required uh, if they make a legal stop and also have reasonable suspicion that someone's uh, an illegal immigrant, uh, they can be required to do an immigration status check as long as it doesn't unduly prolong uh, the detention of the individual concerned. Um, that is actually standard operating procedure uh, in, in a lot of jurisdictions, maybe even the majority of jurisdictions. Um, and Arizona has a particular problem because its two biggest cities uh, Phoenix and Tucson have uh, proclaimed themselves sanctuary cities and actually directed their uh, police officers not 
to make uh, an immigration uh, status check, um, even if they have reasonable suspicion after a legal stop. So the state law, I think, was uh, largely intended to simply overrule uh, what the cities were trying to do. And um, I, uh, you know, why didn't the court, why didn't the Justice Department raise the issue of racial profiling that everyone's talking about? Um, you know, my my thought is that they think it's a loser. Um, they would have uh, used it if they thought they could win with it, um, uh, and uh, they didn't because uh, it's a loser, and it's a loser because um, profiling, to some extent, is inherent in the enforcement of immigration laws. I mean, if you're concerned about racial profiling at the state level in the enforcement of immigration laws, shouldn't you also be concerned about racial profiling uh, in the enforcement of uh, federal immigration laws by the federal government itself? Uh, so I think that is a place that the federal government was not anxious to go. And Jen, Jen, we should we should mention. I don't think we said this in your introduction that not only do you teach immigration law, but you're a former uh, assistant commissioner uh, at the U.S. Department of Justice for uh, immig- uh, immigration issues there. Um, we need to take a short break. Uh, stay with us. Uh, we'll be back in, in just a few moments and have more on uh, on the Supreme Court's just ended term. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. So I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Protect your firm's email with AppRiver. Send confidential emails with confidence using AppRiver's CypherPost Pro email encryption service. With CypherPost Pro, you'll control who sees your messages, and a patented delivery slip will show you when they're received and opened. There's no hardware or software to manage. You can cancel any time, and you get a 30-day free trial, all backed by AppRiver's phenomenal care. Visit AppRiver.com, that's A-P-P-River.com, or call 866-223-4645. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. Promote yourself online with Legal Talk Network by becoming a featured lawyer. Your featured lawyer profile lets potential clients and referral attorneys get to know you in a five-minute podcast interview with Legal Talk Network. 
plus your photo, your bio, and your firm's contact info. Be part of the most progressive online legal network anywhere. Just call Legal Talk Network at 781-551-9960. That's 781-551-9960. Or by emailing admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Be a Legal Talk Network featured lawyer now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're discussing the important decision made by the U.S. Supreme Court during its last session with New York. Well, the decision was made by the Supreme Court, and we're discussing it with New York University Law Professor Roderick Kills Jr. and Professor Jan Ting from Temple University's Beasley School of Law. Let's continue that conversation. Well, what about the um, the Montana's challenge to Citizens United? How did uh, Roderick? What do you think about that opinion? Well, I mean, I thought that was one of the colossal punts of all time. Um, it seemed to me that the um, court um, would have been expected to say a little bit more about the issue rather than simply um, relying on its earlier decision, um, simply because the issue is actually extremely difficult um, and controversial. And there's, there's a time for the court to sort of spell out exactly um, you know, what it, um, the justification for an opinion that has that kind of visibility. But clearly the court didn't have the stomach for it. Um, and so to that extent, you can say they're just choosing the better part of valor and trying to um, leave resolved what they thought they had resolved earlier. What about in the, uh, the First Amendment uh, domain, I guess uh, we, could, we could say, uh, you know, the uh the, the almost lost in the uh, in the uh, shuffle last week uh, amidst the healthcare case was the uh, court's ruling on the uh, the stolen valor act, uh, and uh, wasn't wasn't the only First Amendment uh, ruling this this year. But uh, uh, was it a significant one? Uh, well, the court didn't have a ruling. Um, the court had a plurality opinion of four votes and then a two vote, and if you put them together and see where they overlap, I guess you get a holding. Um, but what's interesting is you see a crack-up in the court in the Alvarez case um, over um, whether the court's going to continue with what could be called hard-line categorical rules. You know, um, Roberts actually has been pushing that reading of the First Amendment free speech clause. Um, the idea is, yeah, you know, if you stomp an animal with a high-heeled shoe, that's speech. If you scream at a funeral, obscenities, that's speech. It's protected. It's sort of like the old Hugo Black um, attitude. You know, Justice Black used to carry a copy of the Constitution in his back pocket, and he was a First Amendment absolutist. And when um, when reporters asked him how he could vote to protect all this um, you know, speech, Nazis marching in Skokie or so forth, he'd whip out the Constitution and say, seems pretty simple to me, Congress can make no law. You know, um, and um, that kind of simplicity really characterized a lot of the other First Amendment opinions. And it's that kind of simplicity that allowed the court, in a case like Citizen United, to um, cobble together a majority simply because First Amendment absolutism um, seems to invite a fairly broad reading of um, campaign contributions or campaign expenditures, I should say, to be more accurate, as speech. I mean, if you spend money on a sign, you're spending money on speech. That evaporated with the Alvarez case, where Breyer, for, um, with two votes necessary to get to a majority, said, look, it's a matter of balancing and weighing um, you know, uh, and of course, um, Scalia, Alito, and Thomas dissenting, um, and only four votes 
um, led by Roberts himself, wanted to have a sort of hardline, absolutist categorical rule. Um, so I thought that Alvarez was interesting in that respect. And, you know, you can understand why it would be difficult to say that there's an absolute entitlement to lie to people. As you know, the Stolen Valor Act had to do with lying about whether you earned a medal. Well, the law comprehensively prohibits people from lying in all sorts of contexts. If you're a commercial lawyer listening out there, you know that if you commit fraud, um, you can be held liable in damages. And there's all sorts of areas in which false advertising, saying something dishonest about a product, will get you in trouble with the FTC. So there's something odd about saying that there's a categorical absolute entitlement to lie. And I think that's why the court just splintered and abandoned the Roberts position that we need a categorical rule. Roberts desperately um, wanted, I think, to try to get a majority. Um, but Kagan and Breyer, just a couple of law professors, I might add, the, the Harvard guys just wouldn't stand for it. How is the Supreme Court going to be able to, to pull this all together? I mean, is Roberts going to be able to get a majority where we've got opinions that are coming down on a seven or eight or nine vote basis instead of this 5-4 split? Jan, what, what's your impression about Roberts' ability to be able to pull this court together? Well, I, I think the more that he can win, um, uh, the, the more it strengthens his hand. He was in the majority in both the uh, the high-profile health care and uh, the Arizona immigration cases. I was disappointed that he couldn't pull together a uh, majority in uh, the Alvarez case uh, to somehow join with his fellow uh, Republican appointees and uh, find a way to uh, sustain the Stolen Valor Act. And, I, and I'm still uh, hopeful that Congress can uh, find a workaround, um, as, as Roderick suggests, uh, the, uh, the fraud implications of presenting yourself um, as a, uh, a military medal winner uh, ought to be a factor um, that uh, mitigates against um, interpreting uh, your free speech uh, so broadly as to encompass that kind of misrepresentation. Yeah, but I want to mention one First Amendment case where Roberts pulled together a unanimous court, and that was Hosanna Tabor and the ministerial exception, uh, or the ministerial um, exception to um, um, discrimination laws. Um, this is a case in which um, a church fired a teacher because she claimed she said she was disabled, and um, when she was fired, she filed a lawsuit under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the church raised a um, First Amendment defense, and the court read into the ADA an exception, a ministerial exception, um, based upon First Amendment values. And Roberts was able, on a fairly controversial issue, um, to hold, the get, hold together uh, a unanimous court on that one. So, you know, I don't what? know. It's not, it's not as if he can't win some of these things. Well, another another First Amendment case, I guess you'd call it a First Amendment case, where it was a it was seven to two vote, was that the Knox versus uh, SEIU, a case out of California, dealing with the agency service fees, uh, and uh, that that was uh, uh, well, it was a pr pretty clear. It was a seven to two vote. It, it seemed to be a a, a fairly. Uh, well, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what it means for unions going forward, but, uh, and I'm not even sure how it exactly squares with Citizens United, but it's an interesting case. I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on that case or familiar with it at all. But. Yeah, well, you know, um, the thing about forced speech um, is that it's actually been an area um, where I think the court, um, in a lot of other cases, has um, been willing to pull together and require, for instance, disclosures um, or consent before you force someone to contribute money 
um, especially in a union context where you're dealing with involuntary members. Um, so I, I guess the holding didn't surprise me all that much. But you're right, a 7-2 um, holding is unusual in controversial constitutional areas. So I think I have to come to the conclusion that uh, the Chief Justice has been doing pretty well. Uh, and, you know, we don't know all that goes on in chambers, but I, I think in particular cases you can look at the role of Chief Justice and uh, feel that he really has had a role in cobbling together majorities. Certainly that was true in both of the big cases, uh, health care, where he was really in the lead, and, and in Arizona, where I think but for the Chief Justice's um, willingness to stand with the majority, I think he might not have gotten that one provision um, in Arizona's uh, SB 1070 law to, uh, to uh, pr be preserved. Uh, so I think he's been playing a very active role, and I think um, the references to the Roberts Court are going to become a lot more common now uh, than they have been up to this uh, session. I mean, you also have to ask yourself, compared to what? I mean, all of our institutions at the federal government are incredibly divided, and so, you know, for the court to be able to pull off a few seven to two, eight one decisions, to which I'd add, by the way, the FCC versus Fox Television Stations decision, um, that's pretty impressive. Another wimpy case. Yeah, I know, very wimpy, <laughs> but at least he got a, you know, what was it, seven to one with Ginsburg concurring in the judgment. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that Adam, as Adam Liptak in the New York Times yesterday wrote. Uh, that uh, a look back at the term uh, suggested the Supreme Court had entered a new phase. This term uh, sometimes worked with striking unanimity and assertiveness. Uh, and, and on the same day, I saw an article, or a couple of days ago, I saw an article from uh, Andrew Cohen in, in The Atlantic saying this has been the most divisive term of any Supreme Court term in recent memory. Huh. <laughs> so which is it here? I, I don't know. More, more the former than the latter. I mean, compared to the late Rehnquist Court, um, Things are getting kind of calmer. So more, more a court of unanimity and, yeah. uh, and cohesion. Yeah, and I think the Scottish blog data um, bears that out. Just that, yeah. Jan, is that how you see it, or do you have thoughts? Yeah, I, I am. Um, I'm happy, very happy with the uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, decision, and um, I think uh, you know we're reshaping immigration law uh, as we speak. I think the uh, the High Court has chosen to leave a couple of venues open uh, to the states uh, in this. Um, uh, immigration status check provision uh, has been preserved. And from last year's uh, Chamber versus Whiting decision, I think the uh, states still have power to regulate illegal immigration through licensing provisions, uh, as Arizona and other states have tried to pull the business licenses of uh, employers who fail to do immigration status checks before hiring uh, their employees. So I think that's uh, an important power that uh, the court uh, has uh, given and preserved for the states. And let's take a look at where this court is going. Do you, either of you see any changes in the makeup of the Supreme Court over this next um, year? Do we anticipate any retirements or uh, any appointments? Well, that depends on who wins the election, exactly. and also depends upon actuarial tables about you know personal health. You'd have to ask a doctor rather than a lawyer about the latter. I agree, but, I, so, but I'll, I'll predict that I think there are there are certainly uh, going to be changes, and I think um, particularly uh, if the president is reelected, I think uh, uh, certain justices may may think that it's time to step down and let someone new um, join the high court. Yeah. But that won't change the lineup, as it were. 
And that's the interesting thing. I assume that if Obama's reelected, um, Scalia will grin and bear it um, for four years. He won't be leaving. Right. And if Romney's elected, I suspect that Ginsburg will hold tight and, um, you know, make sure she um, um, eats healthily, yeah. take care of herself. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my, my suspicion is that there will be no shift um, in the 5-4 ideological makeup of the court regardless of who, who wins, although who composes the five and who composes the four may change um, depending upon um, who wins the presidential election. And, and let's take a look forward to it, Prop 8. What do you think is going to happen when California's Proposition 8, the uh, Equal Marriage, Equality Marriage Act, comes up? I think it's always dangerous to predict these uh, these tough ones. I think, you know, at one point before we went on, you you had asked me before the decision came down how the Affordable Care Act uh, decision was going to go. And I think, you know, no one could have predicted exactly uh, how it was going to uh, turn out. But I think that, you know, I'm a big fan of the trend of history. And I think the court wants to be the majority of the court. The swing vote wants to be on the, the side of history. And I think uh, that's uh, was a factor consciously or subconsciously in uh, the Affordable Care Act. And I think it'll be a factor in uh, the outcome of the, um, the same-sex marriage uh, decision. Yeah, I uh, think well, actually Jen... some of the petitions to look at, though, that will be really important, um, and the court hasn't acted on them, will be the Voting Rights Act petitions from the last round of um, redistricting. There's several of them pending from the South, and um, they involve essentially Republican legislatures gerrymandering districts to pack black voters. Um, And they'll raise very interesting questions about whether such action violates the Fifth Amendment's ban on um, race-conscious decision-making. I think those are very interesting to look at. They'll be important. Well, we're, we're just about at the end of our time here, uh, and we do want to give you each an opportunity to give us your closing thoughts uh, before we conclude and also uh, let our listeners know uh, how they can follow up with you if they'd like to do that. Uh, so, uh, uh, Jan Ting, let's start with you. Well, it's, it's been a great session and uh, culminating in these two great, great big cases that came down uh, this week and emphasizing just uh, four months before the election how important the Supreme Court is uh, and uh, how it directly affects our, our, everyone's lives. I have a blog at newsworks.org, and um, uh, people are welcome to check me out there, and uh, people can reach me by email at janting at temple.edu. And Roderick, your, your final thoughts as well as your contact information, please. Yeah, I would echo what Jan said. Um, obviously, you know, blockbuster final cases and, um, uh, some, and some other ones that didn't get as much attention. Um, and I'd emphasize Hosanna Tabor and um, um, the, um, some of the First Amendment decisions. Um, I think that um, uh, the, the court actually has achieved much more consensus on a bunch of ad law cases that nobody paid any attention to, administrative law cases. But if you want to talk about that or email me, feel free at roderick.hills at nyu.edu. And I sometimes blog over at Profsball blog. That's P-R-A-W-F-S-B-L-A-W-G. Um, been a pleasure. And thank you both very much for being on the show today. Bob, let's, uh, what are your thoughts about this uh, Supreme Court term? You've got some things to talk about. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I don't know. I was, uh, uh, I, I'm no expert on the Supreme Court whatsoever, as, as you well know. I, I uh, was uh, amazed uh, by the events of last week and still reeling a little bit from some of that, uh, not what I expected to see come down. Uh, and uh, I was actually looking at uh, 
uh, some of this, this court's uh, IP decisions. It was kind of a quiet term. I mean, the court had a few cases on AP issues, but uh, I didn't think anything too significant. Uh, Capos v. Hyatt maybe was one where they talked about the ability to uh, introduce uh, new evidence in court in a, in a challenge to a, a USPTO uh, uh, a patent uh, grant, but uh, uh, or rather denial, but... Um, Nothing, nothing insightful to add here. Right? I don't think, other than what our guests have said, Craig. How about you? What are you thinking? No, I, I think they know a lot more about this than you and I do. And and uh, I kind of, but the one thing that surprised me was um, just the Roberts's uh, last minute. You know, I don't want to call it a hat trick, but the uh, the last minute save on the Obamacare, given uh, to changing of a mandate to a tax. And I'm I'm fearful that that will be used in the future by courts uh, to uphold. Uh, these kind of things, which really aren't taxes, but we'll see. Yeah, I will say I've been trying to plug my way through. I start, started getting through a little bit of uh, Justice Scalia's new book called Reading Law, The Interpretation of Legal Texts, and been looking a little bit more carefully at, at his own uh, writing of opinions in the context of what he says about writing of opinions. Uh, and, and it's interesting. It's an interesting book and uh, recommend people who are interested in the court take a look at that. Well, hopefully that's a little bit of foreshadowing. In any event, we we want to remind our listeners that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes, and we're going to have an and we have an Android app where you can access all Legal Talk Network shows, and we're hopeful to have an iPhone app shortly. So check it out. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com. And thanks a lot to our guests for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate your thoughts uh, on this and your time. Thanks. Our pleasure. Yep. And we will see you next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Talk to you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.